Well, hi, everyone. My name is Chris, if we haven't met before. Today, it's a privilege to study with you Psalm 23. Maybe you're new to the Bible, you're new to church. This is probably still a passage you've heard before. It's a famous, famous psalm in the Bible. And I want to study this together as a way of connecting Advent, where we celebrate God with us, with the beginning of a new year ahead. That's what we're going to do. And as we go through Psalm 23, I want to intersperse like the images of this psalm with my own season of grieving in hopes that it will minister to you and God will speak to you through it. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read the psalm in its entirety just so you can hear it. We don't have it up on the screen or anything. I just want you to hear the psalm in its entirety. Then I'll pray and then I'll walk us through it verse by verse. Okay, so here is Psalm 23, maybe the most famous passage in the Bible. Did you see the book of Eli, that movie with Denzel Washington? It's, you know, it's pretty violent, but in it, he reads Psalm 23. So that wasn't in my notes, but book of Eli, Denzel Washington. Here we go. This is the Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words, these images. We just acknowledge that we're in a busy, hectic, crazy season but I pray this time would be time set apart to hear from you. So that the images of this psalm work over our hearts and give us a fresh understanding or revelation of your character and who you are in our lives. And so we just invite you to come, Holy Spirit. You say, come, Holy Spirit, minister to us through the words you inspired. We pray this in the awesome name of Jesus. Okay, we're gonna walk through this verse by verse. The psalm starts, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. It's this beautiful image for God, that God is our shepherd and we are the sheep, right? Messy, prone to wander, frequently lost, easy prey for lies, fear, guilt, shame, yet deeply, deeply valuable to the shepherd. And God is the shepherd. Now, curiously, shepherds were often despised and ostracized in that day. It was not a profession that one aspired to as a child. They were often on the outside of the religious community. Yet God identifies himself as a shepherd. 
As we saw all throughout Advent, God identifies with those in the margins and even says here, this is what I'm like I'm a good shepherd, right? Talk about powerful representation, right? Like you as a shepherd, you feel on the outside of the religious community and then you read this psalm and realize, no, God is a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, what does the rest of this psalm tell us about God as shepherd? Look at verse two. It says, he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. This is a picture of peace for the sheep, but not for the shepherd. Instead, it's a picture of real work that every shepherd had to perform. And so sheep need water, but sheep are afraid of moderate or fast moving streams. And so the free range shepherd had to always be near water that was very slow or damped. And if he wasn't near, you know, slow moving water, he had to find it or create it by making a dam. Not only that, unless it's extreme rapids, the sheep aren't really in any danger with the shepherd nearby. And so leading the sheep to still water is a picture of the shepherd stooping to serve the sheep in their weakness. In other words, this is a picture of God meeting us where we are in our weakness, in our insecurity, in our ignorance, all with the purpose of refreshing us and restoring us, right? Like what a kind and beautiful picture of God. And I want us to sit with that image for a moment because how many of us feel tired and weary? Like how many of us, even in this moment, feel like we need refreshment and restoration after the year we've had? Imagine God leading us to quiet waters and refreshing our souls. God wants to do this for us. We don't have to convince God to do this. It delights the heart of God to make us lie down and rest, to quench our thirst, to restore us. As many of you know, my dad passed away this fall. And when grief was fresh, and it still kind of is, but when grief was like really fresh, I didn't like the grieving version of myself. I didn't like, I don't like the limitations grief imposed on me, the lack of motivation, the feeling of always being tired, slipping in and out of semi-depressive states, my inability to predict when waves of sadness would wash over me. It made me feel vulnerable and always on the edge of being exposed in weakness. And I didn't like it. And in that space, I had to let God love me. I had to let God lead me to green pastures and beside still waters without guilt and shame so that he could restore my soul and meet me in that place. Like, have you been through a season of sadness or grief or heartbreak or loss? Do the holidays amplify it or bring it all back to you? In those moments, our image about God or, or, you know, our image of God, our beliefs about God, they matter so much. The picture of the God we encounter in Psalm 23 is so refreshing that God is not trying to run us into the ground. 
God has no interest in us being haggard or hurried or worried. God is not trying to chew us up and spit us out. God isn't trying to ruin our lives. He wants to restore us and refresh us. He understands our weakness and our limitations, and he meets us in that place. God is a good shepherd. God cares about us apart from what we can produce or how we can impress others, and he wants to refresh us and restore us and revitalize our souls and make us come alive again. That's what God wants to do. Then look at what comes next. It says, the good shepherd, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for the glory, for the honor of his name. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Righteousness is like right relatedness to God, to others, to oneself, and to the world around us. He leads us in paths of right relatedness. God wants us to be rightly related to him. He makes that possible through Jesus. That Jesus, God with us, he lives the life we couldn't live without sin. He dies the death we should have died for our sins, in our place, bearing our judgment. He rises from the dead and through faith in him, we're clothed in his righteousness and perfection. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our faults, our sins, our failings. He sees the purity and beauty and righteousness of Christ that through Jesus, we're rightly related to God. And so God's always, the Spirit's always guiding us again again and again back to Jesus as our source of, of hope and forgiveness and new life. He wants us to be rightly related to him. He wants us to be rightly related to others, rightly related to the world around us, and rightly related to the world within us. He leads us, he guides us into righteousness, into right relatedness, the right path through his word, by his spirit, in the community of believers. Are we on a path that leads to right relatedness with God, with others, with the world outside of us, and with the world inside of us? Because that is where God wants to guide us through his word, by his spirit, in the community of faith. That's his resolution for our lives, righteousness. Then the psalmist writes this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Some of your translations say, even though I walk through the darkest valley, and death can feel like the darkest valley, can't it? And the holidays can be an assault on our grief. That death, the death of a loved one splits our lives into a sharp before and after, before the loss and after the loss. Holidays will never be the same. Photo albums bear witness. The empty seat at the table bears witness. Birthdays will never be the same. There's nowhere you can go in this world to truly find them, touch them, hold them. It is a dark, dark valley and we need to acknowledge the darkness rather than paper over it with tired cliches as a way of distancing ourselves so that we can feel undisturbed and more comfortable. That many of us in the holidays feel this darkness and when it's not named, we feel even more isolated. This psalm says, no, there are dark valleys 
we walk through, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so there's heaviness in this passage. There's an acknowledgement of the darkness in this passage. And it can feel heavy. But there's also an acknowledgement of hope in this passage. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? There's a story of a pastor who had just finished preaching at a funeral and Psalm 23 was read and in it, you know, there's this phrase, the, the valley of the shadow of death. And his daughter was curious and asked him, you know, what is, what is the shadow of death? And at that moment, as they were driving, a trailer passed by them and cast a shadow over the car. And the pastor asked his daughter if she'd rather be hit by the trailer or by its shadow, which is kind of, it's kind of a weird question. Uh, but having a pastor as a dad is weird in itself. So he said, you know, he goes, would you rather get hit by the trailer or by its shadow? And she gave the obvious answer. I, she'd rather be hit by the shadow. And in that moment, he said, well, death is real. It's concrete. But we're only hit by its shadow. Why? Because Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, bears the brunt of death in our place. He took the full impact. We are only struck by its shadow. Why? Because Jesus went through death and came out the other side. And through him, death is turned from a final separation into a homecoming. That's why the Apostle Paul could write these words. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, and I say, would rather, let me read that again. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. To be fully connected to the source of everything that was good and beautiful and true in our lives. The best of our lives was only a tiny foretaste of what is in store. And in this instance, perhaps more than any other, we live by faith and not by sight. And did you notice the implications of what Paul wrote? He says, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul prefers to be at home with the Lord. In other words, death gives Paul what he ultimately prefers to be at home with the Lord, to be in the presence of Jesus. Paul is describing like a vibrant, alive resurrection faith which knows our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us or producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. The finality of death, the separation of death, the fear of the unknown, all of this has been done away with by Jesus that he went through death and came out the other side and he holds the key keys to a door that no one has ever unlocked before and he invites us to follow him through it into life that is truly life, life that starts now and lasts forever. And it's all true. And we know the end of the story is better than the beginning and the middle. That's why I've always loved the way C.S. Lewis ends the Narnia series in the seventh book, The Last Battle. When the main characters, they die and they enter into the presence of Aslan. And he describes it like this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say 
that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I believe that with all my heart. And I've often told people that, you know, knowing the end of the story changes our experience of the middle. Like knowing the end of the story changes our experience of the middle. And I'll give you an example. Um, And it's a great one, you should take notes. That sounded arrogant. It's, It's an okay example, it's pretty good. I recently rewatched um, the original Star Wars trilogy, uh, which is a great thing to do between Boxing Day and New Year's. Uh, if there's not a lot to do otherwise, that, you know, the original trilogy. And so, if you know it, uh, in The Empire Strikes Back, there's this scene at the start where Princess Leia kisses Luke, Luke Skywalker, to make Han Solo jealous. It's right at the start of The Empire Strikes Back. And it's what my kids call like an aggressive kiss, okay? And so Leia kisses Luke and Luke just thinks he's the man. And Hansel's like, oh, how dare you? Um, And then, okay, so that happens, that scene. And then in The Return of the Jedi, this is why I told you to take notes for this part, okay? So like, then in The Return of the Jedi, Luke finds out that Leia is his sister. And he tells Leia, he goes, listen, I'm your brother. And Leia says, somehow, I've always known. And you're like, what? You've always known? What were you doing kissing him then? Did you know then? It's like, point is, you can never watch that kiss the same way again once you know the end of the story. Why? Because knowing the end of the story can change our experience of the middle. And as believers in Jesus, like we know the end of the story in the language of this psalm, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord forever. This is our ultimate hope when we're in the valleys, in the valley of the shadow of death. And ultimate hope matters when you're hurting and when you're sad and when you're grieving. It stops grief from going bad. It's almost like how they used to, you know, rub salt into meat to prevent it from going bad. Like hope is like rubbing salt into your grief as a preservative to keep it from going bad or heading down a path into bitterness or despair. That knowing the end of the story matters in the valley. It matters in the middle, right? Ultimate hope in Jesus matters in the valley. It turns death into a shadow. But to be honest, I believe all that's true. And it doesn't help a lot with the sadness we experience in the moment. Because when you lose someone who follows Jesus, you're not sad because they're with Jesus. You're sad because the person's not with you. They're not lost, but you still can't find them. Carrying them in your heart is not the same thing as holding them in your arms. It's like a bad substitute, or that's how it feels. But I'll tell you one thing that does make a difference. 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. The good shepherd is with us. You even notice a change of pronouns in the song. The psalmist goes from the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. But when it comes to the darkest valley, the pronouns change to you are with me. You comfort me. I'm not alone. I'm not forsaken. You are with me as I walk through this valley. That God doesn't always lift us out of the valley. Sometimes God leads us through the valley. And the only way to get to the other side is to feel it and to walk through it and to invite Jesus into it. You see, often we ask the why question when we're in the valley. Why did this happen? Maybe with anger. And that's not a bad question. It's not a bad question. But often we don't get a specific answer. And here's another question when led into a valley that we would not have chosen for ourselves. Instead of why we ask, what now? Or what next? And often the answer is hold on, take another step, keep going. We talk about strength for the day, what about strength for the next step? You keep guiding God, and I'll keep walking, knowing that I'm not alone. You're with me. Most of our prayers are, God, lift me out. That's not a bad thing to pray. But here we're encouraged to pray, God, lead me through. God, lead me through this valley. And the good news is that though I'm in this valley, I'm not alone in it. You are with me. You are with me. You will not leave me or forsake me. And sometimes there's a deeper depth of intimacy and richness in our relationship with the Lord when we're in the valley and when we're broken and when we're hurting and when we're sad and when we get real about that and vulnerable and invite Jesus into it. We experience this richness of intimacy and closeness. And look at how the psalm ends. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. This is symbolic of a feast, like a place of refreshment and strengthening, a place of joy and festivity. You prepare a table for me even in the presence of my enemies, their criticism, their judgment, their opposition. They're talking behind my back. They're throwing me under the bus. They're ghosting me on text. Their general saltiness in my direction, right? They're online trolling, whatever. My enemies can't ruin the party you've set for me. My cup may feel dry. Loss and hardship have drained my cup, poked holes in my cup. Like my cup is leaking. It's symbolic of joy and, and celebration. Say my cup is leaking joy and leaking peace and leaking security and leaking hope. But what this psalm says is it will overflow again. It will overflow again. 
even in the presence of my enemies, even against the great enemy, the apostle Paul calls death the last enemy to be defeated. It's like, God, you, you prepare a table for me, even in the presence of that enemy, even in the fearful presence of that enemy. It's like, do you? I wrote some of this uh, while in the hospital room overnight, watching my dad on the brink of eternity. And I was at church the day before, and I preached, and we celebrated communion. And communion was originally actually like a meal, right? Even a celebration, a remembrance of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. It's meant to happen at a table, not just in pews. And we were doing communion, and before I ate the wafer, the piece of bread, I broke it. And in that moment, I felt like God spoke to me and said, my body was broken so that his body could be made whole. My body was broken on earth so that his body could be made whole in heaven. And I know no bones on Jesus's body were broken, but he did literally die of a broken heart. My body was broken so that his could be made whole. And then after the service, Sharon Johnson said to me, and what a great thing to quote Sharon Johnson and not Daryl Johnson for once. Sharon said to me, it's not death that comes for us as believers. It is Jesus who comes for us. And I felt joy and I felt hope. And I felt like God prepared a table for me in the presence of that enemy. And I was convinced that my cup would overflow again. God is too good to go back on his promises. And I knew that goodness and loving kindness would follow me all the days of my life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I know some of us, our cup feels empty, feels dry, feels like it could never be full again. But on the authority of God's word, I want to say to you that your cup will overflow again. And until that day, God is with me and God is with you too. And I don't know if next year is going to be harder or easier. I would like your next year to be easier but I don't love you as much as God does. And I know he's our good shepherd who sometimes guides us through dark valleys because there's something good on the other side of it. He is a shepherd who does restore our souls and fill our cups. He is the shepherd whose goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. I don't know what the next year will hold, but I know it holds green pastures and quiet streams. Your cup will overflow again. I know it holds God's goodness and love. His goodness and love is chasing after us, but it's also waiting ahead of us. There will be mountaintops and there will be valleys. Don't be afraid. He is with you. This last year was the hardest year of my adult life. 
and I'm just sad all the time. But there were still green pastures and still waters and God's goodness and love. Tables upon tables of abundant goodness and gladness. There were tears of sorrow, but there was also the oil of joy. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The good shepherd is with us and he will never forsake us. Amen.